So I don't know how many of you have noticed this before, but like a casino, a grocery store has no windows, has no clocks. They're likely pumping in oxygen into the store so you can breathe. Uh, And even though they're not a restaurant, they are cooking fresh food. I'm convinced the reason they are doing this is because grocery stores are designed to make you feel lost, disoriented, and hungry. (laughs) Because when you're lost, disoriented, and hungry, you make bad decisions, like like buying food that you don't need. I've literally never successfully made it out of a grocery store without feeling snookered. I've been taken. Laura has learned to never send me to the supermarket without a specific list because she knows that if she only gives me verbal instructions, I will not come home with anything she's asked for and I will have a sheer look of confusion on my face about why I went there in the first place. Because it's all very confusing. Even with the list, I'm completely out of my element. I end up making inefficient laps around the store. That's a, uh, a deal because I'm just trying to work the list from top to bottom, but that's a rookie mistake. I, I know better, but I'm just so focused on making sure I get what Laura has asked for and written down. I don't want to blow it, but that generally causes multiple trips to the same aisle. You end up running into the same worker. He's like, you again? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's my bad. I forgot what I was on my list. See, it's here, but uh, it's just it's just in, unbelievable. Uh, Laura has now learned like some sort of grocery store savant to categorize the list about where things are located in the store. So so now I can work the store from front to back. Everything is all right there. But even uh, when she does that, she'll write curious notes off to the side. So it'll say spinach, but not baby. Now I've got to make a judgment call. So I'm eyeing the greens carefully, trying to gauge how adult the spinach is. I'm asking a dude next to me, hey, would you call this like toddler spinach or like preteen spinach? I I can't get baby, okay? That's why I'm right here on my list. There are, of course, other similarities between the grocery store and the casino. Choosing a checkout line and choosing a blackjack table or slot machine, very similar. You do not want to sit next to or uh, at the casino or get stuck behind at the grocery store, the Chatty Cathy. Uh, Chatty Cathy's look at your cart, ask about your life. They'll say stuff like, hey, quite the load there. You got a big family? You're just like, no, not really. About Who are you? Why are you asking, looking at my groceries? It's all, it's all kind of weird. They'll say, oh, I had a big family when I was your age. Now it's just me and my cat. Uh Chatty Cathy's always have a cat, you see, that's what they always do. But you young kids don't have to worry about any of that anymore because uh, nowadays they have the self-checkout. I remember when I first saw the self-checkout, it was like a, like a Bigfoot riding a unicorn on a rainbow, like finding the pot of gold. You know what I'm saying? Like, thought my, you mean I don't have to talk to anybody? This is, this is amazing. I can just check myself out. I don't care if I don't work there. I just would love to not have to do any of that. But... Why am I talking about all of this? Pineapples. Pineapples. I'm old enough to remember when you went to the store, you had to weigh your fruit and vegetables. It's another curious tradition about grocery stores. Now you just scan the tag back in the day, weigh and pay, boys, weigh and pay. But I don't know what you had to pay for a pineapple back then. I don't recall. Nowadays, you only have to pay $1.99. 
I went to the grocery store this week for uh, research purposes. Took a selfie with the pineapple, right? No, not really. But a dollar ninety-nine was all you had to pay for a pineapple. I have no idea if that's a good price or not. Like I said, I'm not much of a shopper. It seemed reasonable to me, dollar ninety-nine for a pineapple. Except, did you know that pineapples used to be so expensive and highly sought after that only the extraordinarily rich could stand a chance of getting one? No joke, when pineapples were first discovered and arrived in Europe after Christopher Columbus came to the New World, people were so intrigued by this fruit that looked like a pine cone yet was juicy like an apple, hence the name, pineapple, that they became a symbol of luxury and privilege. There was a time when simply having a taste of pineapple would have been the highlight of a person's life. At its peak, pineapple sold for $8,000 in today's currency. True story. Instead of eating it, people would display the fruit until it rotted. They would even have viewing parties. You would invite all your people over. Instead of coming to watch the Super Bowl, they would come to look at your properly displayed pineapple. You could even rent them. So you couldn't eat them. But you could display them. You could rent a pineapple, and it's like the first uh, uh, gender reveal party or whatever you know they have now days. You know, it's like ta-da! It's a it's a pineapple, but it's not pink or blue. So anyway, but imagine taking someone from the 1500s and going to Dylan's, and you'd have to ignore their weird clothes because they'd be in like a bathrobe with tights with the pointed hat and the feather. Right? Y'all seen uh, Robin Hood? Never mind. Uh, But so you're in the grocery store. Imagine the look on their face when they're standing there looking at a pile of pineapples for only $1.99. Imagine the sheer panic as people walked around and speared the juicy fruit out of the plastic container for free. This would have been the highlight of the person's life. Imagine taking them to the aisle where you can buy pineapple chunks in a can. Here's why I bring all of this up. Why doesn't anyone care about pineapples today? Why aren't they protected or celebrated? Why don't we enshrine them in architecture anymore? I think it's because they're easy to come by. And since they're easy to come by, they are, their value has been greatly diminished. Because of uh, globalization and air transportation, it's made them widely available, thus they're less special. That's kind of the problem with being common. It's easy to take for granted what you have a lot of. It's the old adage, familiarity breeds contempt. You see, the pineapple itself has not changed, only our attitude towards it has. I wonder if that's not an appropriate analogy for what has happened to sex. It was meant to be something rare and exotic that we would only ever experience in a very specific context, but now it has become something common. We Netflix and chill now. We Tinder and swipe for a good time. I read an article where a guy said, I don't want to buy it without trying it. That's kind of the attitude today. But think for a moment how noteworthy it would be if only one person on this planet, of all the billions and billions of people there are, imagine the gift it would be if you were only known by one person. That would make sex pretty spectacular, wouldn't it? It would be the opposite of common. It would be the opposite of our situation with the pineapple. 
come back to that in just a second. If you're a guest with us today, welcome to New Anthem Church. If you're back for the first time in a long time, glad you're here as well. We're in part two of this series called Home Wreckers, and we're trying to see what God has to say about some potential pitfalls in your life that can wreck your life. Y'all know what a pitfall is, right? You played that game on Atari, okay? Uh, Well, we're trying to figure out what are some shortcuts that we can take to avoid the boulders that are eventually going to come at our lives and could potentially wreck our lives. Like, are there some vines we can use to get out of the danger areas of life that are too big to jump over? Because as I said last week, I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to look around at the world and realize that relationships are not really working the way they were designed to work. I mean, when you have the levels of abuse, neglect, violence, abandonment, abortion, murder, and otherwise that we have in this country, it's not hard to wonder, is there something we can do differently? There's something we can do to turn the tide. Now, I believe there is. I I believe that we're going to need to get some assistance from the author of relationships, though. However, you might be here today and, and not believe in God and not believe that He created relationships. We're just products of evolution, which if that's you, I'm glad you're here. But uh, do me a favor over the next 20 minutes or so, go ahead and just pretend with me. You don't have to tell anybody, okay? You can continue believing whatever you want to believe as you leave here today. But for the next moments that we're together, can you just pretend that there is a God? That He did create the world and everything in it, and He does have a purpose, plan, and point for your life and everybody else's life as well. And while we're pretending, let's also pretend that the primary reason behind this creation was relationship. First, God wanted a relationship with you. That's why He created you. And then He also wants you to have relationships with other people. Now, the problem is, as we've already established, relationships are hard. Relationships don't always work out the way we want. The relationships, uh, uh, the reason relationships are hard and the reason they don't always work out the way we want them to uh, is because there's this thing called sin. And sin is separating you from God and the ability to fully love the people around you. So if you could just act like all of that is true, then this passage will make more sense to you. It's Romans 12.2. It says, Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will know God's will for you, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. Here's what that just said. The best way to work on us or our relationships is to start with me. The best way to solve the issues in this world, specifically in our relationships, is to start with allowing God to change how we think as individuals. If we're going to change this, we've got to change ourselves first. In other words, we can't do what the world is doing and expect different results. If we want anything in our lives to change, then we have to allow God to change how we think. Last week, we talked about how God can change how we think about communication. Today, I'm hoping that maybe God can change how we think about sex. Sex is, without a doubt, the biggest life wrecker in the world just under communication. 
Most of sex's problems could be fixed with proper communication, but because people are unwilling to talk about it, or at least talk about it from a godly perspective, it's literally destroying people's lives, both inside and outside of marriage. Which, to prove my point, I could have thrown a bunch of statistics out of you about how our culture wants us to believe that sex is no big deal. It's purely physical, almost animalistic, that you don't need to be married to experience a healthy sex life. Except uh, married, uh, married people, research has shown that married people have a better sex life. Research has shown that women experience far fewer orgasms in non-committed sexual encounters than in, uh, in, uh, than in marriage relationships. Studies have shown that 40 years ago there were only two sexually transmitted diseases. According to the CDC, there's now over 25, which one in four girls have one, and 10,000 American kids per day contract one. Furthermore, like a lawyer, I could have given you a case about how sex is more than physical because the American Psychological Association just wrote a massive article about the emotional scars you'll have after an abortion or how depression and suicide numbers skyrocket among teen girls who experiment with sex, including oral sex. I could have lectured you about how third marriages statistically do worse than first mar- or second marriages and second marriages do worse than first marriages except first marriages are now over 50% failure today. But I know none of those things are going to dissuade you if you've already decided that times are a changing and you're going to change with them. I'm just praying that God can do what only he can do and perhaps change our minds on how we think about sex. So listen to me. Here's why I want you to hear what I have to say. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty about your past. I'm trying to fight for your future. Come on, somebody. This is a big deal in our world today. God can do something great in your life no matter where you're at or what you've done, but you can't keep doing life your own way. God's way always works better. And God has a better plan for your sex life than the devil does. You might jot this down if you're taking notes. Here's my main point today. The problem isn't having a sex drive. The problem is letting sex drive. The problem in our world today with sex is not having a sex drive. God gave you that. The problem is letting sex drive. The problem with most of our world today is making sex the be-all, end-all in the world. If you're single, listen to me, it's not the ultimate destination for your life that you should be striving for. Single people, don't play the field, reach the world. You have the best opportunity right now. You're not tied down in a marriage. You don't have a spouse to worry about. You don't have kids to worry about. Do something while you're young. Make a difference for the world. And if you are married, you need to hear me say sex was never meant to be used as a tool to manipulate your partner to give you what you want. That's why the Apostle Paul says don't withhold sex from one another unless it's been agreed upon for a season. Look, it's awesome as sex is, that's not God's primary purpose for your life. It's a good gift, but too many people have turned it into a God thing. They've turned what's good into God. Now they worship it. 
Or it's just the opposite, and they've turned it into something gross that needs to be avoided at all costs. Some of you are probably wondering, uh, why are we even talking about this? In church, of all places. I know when I was growing up, the only thing I heard about sex was, it's dirty, it's sinful, it's disgusting, and wrong. So save it for the one you love, right? (laughs) What? So confusing, I don't... I think my story could have been a lot different if church leadership would have addressed it in a godly way instead of me learning it from the other boys in the junior high locker room. You know what I'm saying? So I've, for me, just committed that I'll talk about what the Bible talks about, and the Bible talks about it quite a bit. So if you brought a Bible, I hope you did, go ahead and grab it. Let's see what it has to say about sex. You need to find Genesis in your Bible. Genesis is the very first book in your Bible, so if you have a problem finding it, it's like page three. Okay, so I'm not judging you. I'm just kind of making fun of you in my mind right now, but not, not really, guys. Uh, but Genesis chapter two is what you need. That's a big number two. We're going to pick it up in verse 18. Okay, it's a little 18. Genesis two eighteen. it reads, Then the Lord God said... It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed the ground, all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. The man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But still, there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from that rib. He brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this, is, this one is bone from my bone, flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of man. In case you didn't know, this section of Genesis is Hebrew poetry. Adam is singing a song because when you see a naked girl for the first time, the only appropriate response would be to sing a song according to Adam but bone of my bone flesh of my flesh literally translated uh, from the Hebrew it, may, it, it means dang girl look at you that's what that that's what that means you got kind of no Hebrew to, so don't worry about that but here's what I want you to notice God was pleased with Adam's reaction he didn't correct him He didn't say, Adam, what are you doing? You're so disgusting. Get your head out of the the gutter. In fact, God knew what would happen when He brought the naked woman to the man. It's why the very next line in the text says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, that's God's way of marrying the two, and they shall become one flesh. God, for the first time in recorded history, unites a man and a woman in a marriage covenant. Which, just for the record, Jesus quotes this exact verse when He speaks about sex and marriage in Mark chapter 10. The Apostle Paul quotes the exact same verse in 1 Corinthians 6.16 when he writes, Or do you not know that he who has sex becomes one body with the other person, for as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So, cards on the table here. My thesis for this topic is if sex is God-given, then it should be God-governed. Following me with that. Since sex was given to us by God, then He should govern how it works. If it was His idea, He should tell us how to use it. And point blank, God says, if you take outside sex 
outside of the covenant of marriage, you're going to hurt yourself. What I find borderline ironic, almost comical though, is once God tells us how we're supposed to use something that He invented, we like to cop an attitude and say, He just doesn't want me to have any fun. But when do you use that logic with anything else? You don't. Like when you go to the hardware store and you buy a chainsaw, you don't just throw away the manual because you think they don't want you to have any fun. No, you just intuitively know that the kind folks down at True Value don't want you to chop your legs off. So they gave you the manual. So we assume the best possible intent with the guys at the hardware store, but we get all huffy with God who made us as though He doesn't know everything we know. I mean, we have Siri. Who is God to tell us how to live our lives, right? I mean, Alexa, tell me how to use a chainsaw, right? I mean, we got it all, right? With the voice command. Well, as I've already pointed out, sex was kind of God's idea. He's got the patent for that on file there in his office in heaven. So maybe we should see what God has to say about sex. Okay, so three truths, three lies about sex. Here we go. The lie. God doesn't want you to have sex. The truth. God wants you to have amazing sex. I thought you would be more excited about that than than what I am... I've, I'm sorry. Like, I've had sex with my wife. It's, it's fun, but all right. Okay. Today he goes, right? You know, never mind. It's absurd. Look, God's not saying no sex ever. If you're single, he's saying just not yet. God doesn't want you to settle for hidden, rushed, dirty, or stolen intimacy. He has something so much better for you. He wants you to enjoy sex to the fullest. God's rules are there for a reason not to kill your joy, but to enhance it. I've heard it compared to the ocean. When there's a rushing riptide, you don't see how close you can get to drowning without actually drowning. No, you respect the rules of the water. You swim when you're told to swim, when the time is right. The problem is, deep down, we all want to do whatever we want now, And then we want to do what God wants later. I heard a pastor say, now yells louder, but later lasts longer. There's a lot of truth to that. Instant gratification will keep you from your ultimate satisfaction. Just wait. God has a good plan for your life. We turn from God's plan for sex because we think we'll have more fun, but just the opposite is true. Sexual experience before marriage does not make you better at sex. Studies show that those who don't have a background of pornography or previous partners have a higher level of sexual pleasure in marriage than those who do. Studies not done by Christian organizations, mind you, show that sexually active singles have the most sexual problems. They get the least amount of pleasure out of sex and are more likely to experience depression and suicide. You might be interested to know that the most sexually satisfied group of people are married men and women between ages 50 and 59. That's so gross. So disgusting. It's like my parents' age. I threw up when I wrote that in my... Like, oh, God. Ooh. 
But in case that wasn't enough to sway your opinion, hospital studies have shown that married people have better health. They will make more money. They will have a lower likelihood of stroke, heart disease, and depression. Here's the exact quote. More often than not, married people live longer than their single counterparts. It's amazing. God's design for how your relationships should work results in longer life. It's incredible. Here's the bottom line. God wants you to have amazing sex and honor is the path to your greatest pleasure. Keeping sex pure is your best way to have amazing, fantastic sex, which God wants you to have. Number two, the lie. Sex is just a physical activity meant for pleasure. The truth. Sex isn't just pleasurable, it's also powerful. It's also powerful. The garden shovel that you can use to help grow an amazing crop can also dig your grave. You track in with me on that. It can do something amazing, but it can also kill you. When we engage sex outside of God's plan, it can make us unable to enjoy it inside His plan. See, most people don't think this way, but you are actually teaching your significant other during your single years whether you honor God's standards and boundaries or not. You are telling the person you love what kind of husband or wife you're going to be. If you can't be faithful before marriage, why should they think you'll be faithful in marriage? There's always going to be forbidden fruit. Let me say it this way. The bait you caught them with is a bait you're going to have to keep them with. They're telling you right now what they have an appetite for. So if you send those naked pictures, which one in five kids aged 12 to 15 have, they're telling you what they want in the future. And if your body starts to change and you don't look like that picture anymore, but somebody at work does, you get the idea. My point is you need a foundation on which to you build your relationship and sex is not it. Think about something. Purely from a mathematical standpoint, once you're married, even if you have an incredible sex life and you make love for an hour a day, every single day of the week, there will still be 23 hours of the day when you're not having sex. And the problem with so many people's approach to dating is that they're only preparing for what will amount to a very small percentage of the time spent married. The benefit of having a good friendship in the early stages of courtship without any accompanying physical affection is that it'll give you something to do the other 23 hours of the day. You hearing what I'm saying? Sex isn't just physical, and I'll prove my point. Some research, again, not Christian group at all, showed statistical evidence that regular porn users are more likely to report depression and poor physical health than non-users are. Why? If sex is only a biological urge, then how in the world does looking at naked pictures eventually make you sick and depressed? Because sex is more than just physical. Sex engages you on the deepest possible levels. Body, soul, spirit, and mind. It's why Jesus, Paul, and Moses all said, when you have sex, two become one. 
you realize that's not literal, right? I mean, that's not like Siamese twin stuff happening. That's not an illusion of a getting cut in half and now all of a sudden you're one person again. So this notion that you're having safe sex is ridiculous. I heard Louis Giglio say, they don't make a condom that can fit over your soul. There's a lot of truth to that. You're harming yourself, not just physically. Show you something that might help you in your thought process. The more times you pull up a post-it note and attempt to re-stick it, the less powerful the adhesive becomes. And according to this holy word of God, sex is meant to glue two people together for a lifetime. When the Bible talks about sexual integrity, here's what it's doing. It's saying integrate your body with the rest of your life. If you've given your whole life to someone, which is what happens when you covenant into marriage, then you've given them, you know, legally, economically, socially, spiritually, you're all one. Only then do you give them your physical body. Or else, here's what happens. The post-it note, it quits sticking. And eventually, it can't stick anymore. Sex is God's invention for complete life entrustment. And if you use sex just for the satisfaction of the moment, you weaken your ability to do full, complete life entrustment together. Now that begs the question, well, pastor, what if that's my story? I've messed up. Here's the lie. If you've had sex, you might as well keep doing it because you're damaged. Who's going to want to be with you anymore? Here's the truth. The cross can make you whole again. The cross can absolutely make you whole again. You are not defined by your failures, but by God's forgiveness. Amen, somebody. Like any other sin, sexual sin was paid for when Jesus' blood trickled down the cross. Like all sin, sexual sin is forgivable. But unlike other sins, sexual sin is also a sin against yourself. That means even if you don't get an STD or face a pregnancy or anything else, still, sex still affects you in a significant way. Now, I know that was the last thing I wrote. I wanted you to write down, so you're probably going to try and check out mentally because you think there's nothing else to write. We're going to close, and we're about to. But listen to me. The devil is the ultimate predator. He will always try and rip you off by convincing you you are worth much less than you're actually worth. Jesus, on the other hand, He's a fisherman. And He caught you for a purpose. He didn't get stuck with you. He specifically went looking for you. And through your life, He wants to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all you could ask, or the Bible says even imagine. Ephesians 3.20 This is why the devil is working so hard at convincing you that sex is not a big deal. Because if you're trapped in a prison of porn addiction or sexual immorality, then you won't be out on the battlefield defeating the kingdom of darkness. Who told you that God's highest purpose of your life was simply to forgive you for some sins that He didn't want you to commit in the first place? 
No, God would much rather be blessing you. He'd rather be using you. You're too good to be stuck on a shelf in sin and self-doubt. Don't let the devil determine the value of your life. He's a liar. The Bible says the only language he speaks is lies. So he'll whisper to you that sleeping with someone will make you feel loved. But you're already loved by the Almighty God of the universe. You need to look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. So the devil will say that looking at porn is harmless. It's normal. Help satisfy you. Tell you you're missing out on something. All your friends are doing it. But I'll tell you exactly what you're missing out on. Heartache, regret, guilt, shame, and a whole lot of sadness. That's the truth. With God, you are never stuck where you are. Listen to me. Just because you can't unsow what you've already sown doesn't mean you can't sow something new. Can I get a better amen than that? This is the best news. You can start changing your life. The Bible says you've only got to start changing the way you think. Allow God to do that. Make no mistake, the Bible says that we have to confess our sins to Him so that we can be forgiven. But it's a two-part process because the Bible says you also got to confess your sins to one another so that you can be healed. Might I submit to you, if sexual sin is something you're constantly struggling with, then you've got to bring somebody else into the conversation. You can absolutely be made whole again. God absolutely will forgive you when you confess your sins to Him. But you've also got to confess your sins to one another so that you can be healed. It's going to take God. It's going to take someone else. My question is, who does that person need to be for you? Mentor, friend. My prayer is you're in a small group. You can talk to the leader of the group. But as we close, here's the last thing you need to hear me say. Sex was God's idea. It's His plan. It's a good gift that He wants you to experience. He just defined when you need to experience it. Let's pray. God, thank You for this good gift. Thank You for defining how we should use it. We know it can be dangerous outside of that realm. So we're just asking You for help. Help change the way we think about this good, pleasing, and perfect gift. God, I believe there are marriages here that are struggling in this area. And I believe the first step is communication with you and with each other. And I'm praying for strength right now that married couples can experience a new just empowerment of Your Holy Spirit that they can learn to love one another that they can learn to trust one another again. And that they'd be willing to freely give themselves in sexual union as you have 
given us a good gift to experience. Please bless marriages, bless families. Help encourage and strengthen marriages. And God, I believe that there are single people here who are looking for a spouse. They need a good, godly person to come into their life. And I'm praying right now for that person. For every single person here that's looking for a covenant in marriage, I'm asking for that person for them. And that that person would save themselves so they can experience one another the way you've designed it to work. And finally, God, I just want to intercede on every person's behalf who that's not their story. They want to be forgiven. And they want to be made whole. God, I just ask that you give them a peace and a comfort that only you can provide. Help encourage them to confess their sins to you but also give them somebody in their life that they can talk to to help work through the situation so that they can be healed. Bless them in a powerful way. God, we know we're nothing without your son, Jesus. That the only reason we can be forgiven is because he lived a perfect life for us. He died a sin that was, he took our sin, died a death that was meant for us. Wages of sin is death. God, we... We know that by sinning, we're only earning death. But because Jesus beat death, He raised from the dead, we're made new. If you're here this morning and you've never confessed your sin to God, I want to give you a chance to do that right now. Because you can be forgiven. You can be made new. There can be new life in you today. You just have to say, God, I'm sorry. I believe in Your Son, Jesus. He took my sin. And I can be made new. Thank you for saving me. Help me today to live for you. I give you my life. God, we're so thankful for that free gift of salvation. We're so thankful for newness of life. We're so thankful for the beauty of love and encouragement that you can provide for us and the people in our lives can as well. Help us today to live for you. In Jesus' name, everybody said a good amen, amen. amen.